Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, we finish up our series on God by the Numbers with Michael Samuel Smith. Greg Patton will be living in today's world. And as we start today's program, we want to say Happy Veterans Day to all those who have served and are serving this country. Watchman on the Wall is here each day, bringing clarity to the chaos on the radio, online, and on our daily podcast. Don't miss a moment. Subscribe to our Watchman on the Wall podcast or simply download our SWRC mobile app. We also want to extend a special thank you to all of our faithful friends, individuals, and families coming alongside Watchmen on the Wall with monthly sustaining support. You can become a faithful friend today. Just visit the Faithful Friends section of our website, swrc.com, or simply give us a call, 1-800-652-1144, and let us know you want to become a faithful friend. That's 1-800-652-1144. If you love Bible prophecy and are fascinated by what numbers mean in the Bible, today's teaching is for you. Michael Samuel Smith is back with more insight into the possible meanings of the numbers that are found in the Bible. We're back with prophecy researcher Michael Samuel Smith and talking about his latest DVD, God by the Numbers. This is certainly a fascinating video presentation that also explores the topic of blessings and curses. It starts out with Deuteronomy chapter 28, in which the Bible specifically lays out the conditions for both. So there's lots of scripture, lots of analysis. The title of the video, God by the Numbers. Brother Mike, thank you so much for being back with us. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Spargimino. It's always a great honor to be on your program. Well, in your DVD, you discuss the Isaac prophecy and its connection to a third-day revelation. What can you tell us about that? Well, this is a story most of us are familiar with. The story is found in Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham is about 47 miles south of Jerusalem in Beersheba, and God speaks with him and asks him to go to the mountains of Moriah, which is in the Jerusalem area. He tells Abraham it's a three days journey, but he will show him the place when he gets there. The Jews call this story the Akedah, but we know it as the sacrifice of the Isaac story. This is one of the most important prophecy stories in the Bible. This story is jam-packed with prophecies that many folks have missed, so I would like to cover some of the highlights today. In Genesis chapter 22 and 2, God told Abraham to take his only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. I want to stop right there and say we know there is another son, of course, by the name of Ishmael. However, Isaac is the only son of promise. And then it says, only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. There's something called the law of first mention in the Bible. This is actually the first time in the Bible the word love is actually used. So in verse 3, Abraham is off on his three-day journey with his son and two servants. One of those servants is Eliezer, found in Genesis chapter 15, verse 2, but his name isn't mentioned in chapter 22. We know Abraham arrived at his destination on the third day because Genesis chapter 22, verse 4 says so. So Abraham instructs his servants to remain at the bottom of the hill, but lets them know the lad and I will come again to you. 
we can be very sure Abraham knew Isaac was going to survive this experience. Why? Because Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19 tells us, Abraham already knew in advance this was the account God was able to raise Isaac up, even from the dead. Abraham also knew in advance his seed would, in the future, go forward through Isaac. As Isaac and Abraham are walking up the hill, Isaac asks his father, Well, we have the fire or flint and the wood, but where is the sacrifice? The answer that Abraham gives Isaac in Genesis 22 and 8 is most profound. We all need to focus on this statement. Abraham said in 22 and 8, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Did everyone get that? God will provide himself a lamb. Just as Isaac, the son of promise, carried the wood, 2,000 years later, Jesus, the son of promise, carried the wood of the cross, and he would provide himself for all of us. This all happened in the same approximate area. Later, as Isaac was bound to the wood, Jesus, too, would be bound to the cross. As Abraham is now about to kill his only son, an angel of the Lord appears and tells him two times not to kill his son. All of a sudden, a ram is caught in the thicket. By the way, rams do not get caught in thickets. They're too powerful for that. And the ram is sacrificed instead of Isaac. Why is it a ram and not a lamb? Because the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ pre-incarnate in our opinion, and he is the lamb. So, the substitutionary sacrifice takes place on the third day. Just as Christ became our substitutionary sacrifice and arose on the third day, Isaac was spared and arose alive and well spiritually on the third day. But another amazing part of this story that most people do not know is what happened next. So keep your eyes on Isaac. After this event took place, we know Isaac and Abraham went back to Beersheba with the two servants. But you never see Isaac again after the ram takes his place until two chapters later in Genesis chapter 24, when Rebekah, the Gentile bride, shows up at the wedding of Isaac. Then the couple goes into Sarah's tent. Doesn't that sound like they're moving in Sarah's privacy? Well, then you realize Sarah actually died in the previous chapter, chapter 23. The prophetic reason why the Gentile bride and Isaac move into Sarah's tent is because it's a picture of the Gentile bride, the church, being grafted into Israel's tent. So the story of Isaac and the son of promise parallels the story of Christ, like after his three-day resurrection, he's found at our wedding with the Gentile bride of Christ when he returns. Truly a great love story indeed. Amen. Well, that can only happen if the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Things like that are not coincidental. But you spent a lot of time in your film talking about the number 120, 120. In several cases, you suggest it's hinting at 120 jubilees. If that's true, a jubilee is 50 years, and 50 times 120 is 6,000 years. In the story where the Queen of Sheba visits King Solomon for the first time, you say prophetically, this story not only gives us a glimpse of the rapture, but the Antichrist is also in the story. Now, this story I've got to hear, so take us down this very, very adventuresome and exciting road. 
Amen. Well, in the story of the Queen of Sheba coming to visit King Solomon, that's found in 1 Kings chapter 10. We believe there is a type and shadow story of Christ coming for the church or rapture, and immediately after that, Antichrist shows up. So let's look at 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 10 through 14. The Queen of Sheba is so intrigued by hearing about the great wisdom of Solomon, she wants to meet him. She shows up with 120 talents of gold, spices, and precious stones or gems. Then she goes back where she's from. And then in verse 14, we see 666 talents of gold are in Solomon's hands by the end of the year. So prophetically speaking, what is this story all about? Well, when the name Sheba is translated from Hebrew to English, it means a number, and that number is number seven, the number of completeness. It also represents Jesus the Messiah. The 120 talents of gold represents 120 jubilees, we believe. A jubilee is 50, and times 120 gives you 6,000. So 6,000 years after Adam and Eve, which is approximately this generation, the Lord shows up for the church, and immediately after that, 666 shows up, Antichrist shows up. So there is also one other example. When the Jews returned from Babylon, 70 years of captivity, back to Israel, the families are named, and how many in the families that returned back to Israel, and that's found in Ezra chapter 2, verse 13. And there it says, in the children of Adanakam, 660 and 6. When translated from Hebrew to English, the word Adanakam means the Lord has risen. The prophetic meaning of this statement means when the Lord has risen with you in the rapture, 666 or Antichrist will be here on earth. Just another type and shadow, I believe, of the Lord returning for us and we see a tribulation after that. Amen. Wow. I know you've been sharing prophecy stories about 46 years now after reviewing your DVD. You say there are times when God actually does, at times, intervene in the affairs of man, and sometimes he leaves his calling card to let us know that he really is in control. You gave an unbelievable parallel story about Abraham Lincoln and President John Kennedy. So, Brother Mike, if you don't mind, run that story by us, and it's just so bizarre and interesting. Well, this is a fascinating story. Just a brief talking point here. It started with our Constitution being written in Philadelphia in 1787. It convened in May 25, 1787, and it wasn't finished until September 17, 1787. After a month, the delegates were getting nowhere, and a lot of frustration ensued. The oldest man there was Benjamin Franklin, who was 81 years old at the time. On the 28th of June, Franklin got up before the whole delegation and insisted, it's time we go into serious prayer about this. This prayer request was actually recorded. Believe it or not, after serious prayer, things completely changed, and it appeared things went extremely well. But I want to quote a part of Franklin's prayer request from paragraph three. He said, I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men, close quotes. Still today, people often ponder over, does God sometimes get involved in political affairs, especially when nations turn away from God? 
I really want to focus on America today because outside of Israel, America is the only nation in human history that patterned itself after God's covenant and his word. There are many parallels between America and Israel, and I would like to submit to those today just some parallels between Abraham Lincoln and John Kennedy. There's a hundred years between each man, and after you hear this story, see if you can see the hand of God. Here are some examples of cyclical, repetitive history in action. Both Lincoln and Kennedy were elected to the House of Representatives. Lincoln in 1846, Kennedy in 1946. Both lost a bid for the vice presidency by their party. Lincoln in 1856, Kennedy in 1956. Lincoln was elected president in 1860. Kennedy was elected in 1960. Both had bodyguards named William, William Crook versus William Greer. Lincoln sat in box number seven at Ford's Theater, and Kennedy was in car number seven in the motorcade. Both died in places with the initials P.H., Peterson House for Lincoln and Parkland Hospital for John Kennedy. Both bodyguards died within 48 hours of each other at age 75, and both vice presidents were named Johnson and were Southern Democrats. Both vice presidents were replaced by Republicans whose mother's name was Hannah. Vice President Andrew Johnson was born in 1808, and Lyndon Johnson was born in 1908. Both conferred with black leaders concerning civil rights. By the way, John Wilkes Booth was born in 1839, and Lee Harvey Oswald was born in 1939. So, both presidents had their elections contested. Both foresaw their deaths before becoming president. Both were shot on a Friday. Both were shot in the back of the head, and both were shot in the presence of their wives. Both assassins were shot and killed before going to trial. Both assassins were in their 20s when they shot the presidents. Both presidents suffered the death of a child while in the White House. Secretaries to both presidents warned them not to go to the places that they were killed. And this is unbelievable. Lincoln's secretary by the name of Kennedy asked him not to go to Ford's Theater. And Kennedy's secretary by the name of Lincoln told him not to go to Dallas, Texas. Lincoln was shot in a Ford's Theater, and Kennedy was shot in a Ford Lincoln limousine. By the way, I have a list of 36 examples but many would say, we just chalk this up to, it's just a coincidence. I do believe God is showing America he really is in control, and sometimes he's nudging nations back into their lane. But there is a point where his patience is wearing thin. So let's keep praying for America that repentance may come about in our day. Amen to that. Well, of all the stories you tell in your DVD, I think the most controversial of all of them is the story about the 153 fish found in John chapter 21. Now, your friend Ron Ensch of about 18 years ago shared that story with you and hinted that it could be showing us how many people alive and well go up in the rapture. Over time, you came to believe that it might be right. Do you mind sharing that story with the audience today? 
Well, our story begins on resurrection morning. Uh, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene and tells her to tell the apostles, and I'm in Matthew chapter 28, verse 10, to go to the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus said he would meet them there. So the apostles make the trip to the Sea of Galilee. We are now in John chapter 21. So the apostles have been fishing all night and caught nothing. Some people feel the apostles just gave up on ministry and just went back to their old livelihood. But I don't believe that's true. Keep in mind, they may have been out of money and even food at this point. John 21 and 14 tells us this will be the third time Jesus will appear to them since his resurrection. So I'm convinced they know Jesus is for real and they're still passionate to follow him. After fishing all night and they come up empty-handed, a mystery man is on the shore and asks them if they caught anything and they said no. Up to this point, they don't know it's Jesus. Then mystery man says, cast their net off the right side of the ship. Then John recognizes Jesus and tells Peter, it is the Lord. And we will see later 153 great fishes will be caught. John chapter 21, verse 11. The very next verse in John chapter 21, verse 12 says, come and dine. About 18 years ago, my friend Ron Ant shared that story with me. It may be controversial, but I'm of the opinion he could be right about that prophecy behind this story. The clue in the story is the word great. Remember, in the Jonah story, God had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. That's in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. As we look at the word great in John chapter 21, verse 11, the Greek word megas is used. That's M-E-G-A-S. It's number 3173 in the Strong's Concordance. This also coincides with the word mega, M-E-G-A, in the dictionary. Its meaning is specialized in physics, meaning one million times a given unit, like the word megabyte. So megas in the Greek is where we get our word million from. My friend Ron says there's a golden nugget of prophecy in this John 21 story. The 153 great fishes caught alive in the net off the right side of the ship could represent 153 million folks going up alive and well in the rapture, and that's not counting the dead in Christ that go up first. The other clue in Ron's hypothesis is the very next scripture in John 21:12 is come and dine, a prophetic call for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Perhaps it's not there by accident. Praise God, I'm ready. Friends, we've been visiting with Michael Samuel Smith, God by the Numbers is packed with prophecies, most of which you've probably never heard before. We're making this video available to our listeners. Brother Mike, thank you so much for being with us these days. Thanks for allowing me to be with you, Pastor Larry. The complete two-day teaching on God by the Numbers is available on CD. Simply call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Today we're featuring Michael Samuel Smith's brand new DVD film, God by the Numbers. If you love Bible prophecy and are fascinated by what numbers mean in the Bible, this teaching is the big one you've been waiting for. It's probably the most detailed presentation of biblical numerics ever made into film. Order God by the Numbers today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. 
and be sure to ask how you can receive free shipping on your order. Greg Patton is a featured speaker at our upcoming Las Vegas Prophecy Conference, November 19th and 20th. Today, Greg is here to look at what it means to be a rich millionaire. So what would it be like if today you were a millionaire ten times over? A rock-solid winner, we would say. No strings attached. Satisfaction guaranteed in life. Have you ever thought about it? I mean, thought about being rich, maybe a millionaire, having lots of money, not a care in the world, at least financially. Come on now, have you ever thought about it? Most of you probably don't play the lottery or any of those perchance games, but what if you did? And what if you won? David said, I can't really put into words what it felt like to learn that I had won $10 million. Can you imagine? Not only was the amount of the money simply too staggering for me to comprehend, he said, but it came at a point in my life where I was just as broke as I had ever been in my life. I was a struggling student. I had no job, and I was down to my last 50 cents. Wait a minute. Oh, and I was living with mom and dad. In short, I was just the average <laughs> fifth grader in America. But there it was, just like manna from heaven, the publisher's clearinghouse heaven, that is, a big gold envelope addressed to me and emblazoned with the news, congratulations, there's my name, you're a guaranteed winner of $10 million, reply to us at once. I was set, I had it made in the shade now. Suddenly, the importance of completing my mathematics homework was utterly ridiculous. Why? If I needed any math done, I'd simply hire a teacher and do all of it for me. And while that teacher was at it, he could also cut the grass in my new 150-acre front yard. What's more, because he made me stand in the corner, because I melted those crayons on the ancient radiator that served as a classroom heater, he could also pick up my dogs. I plan to have lots and lots of dogs. I think I want St. Bernard's. I broke the news to my mom as she whipped up some brownie mix there in the bowl. I just won $10 million in the mail, Mom, I shouted, waving the envelope in an enthusiastic and festive manner of the newly rich in America today. Mom was strangely calm in light of the momentous announcement. Read the fine print there, dear. Find the word if, she advised. If, it says if, well, son, then there's no guarantee at all. She was failing to grasp the enormity of this good news I have, but it says that I am a guaranteed winner, Mom. She pointed to that little asterisk next to the rock-solid promise, that little thing that looks like a star. It means read the fine print. So I went to my room, and I poured over every cleverly crafted line there. This says rock-solid guarantee $10 million if you have the winning number. As long as your number matches the secret number locked in our secure vault, sign up for at least one magazine, or we may be forced to remove you from our mailing list and banish you from all future hopes of ever potentially being a possible guaranteed recipient. It was then that I kind of developed my lifelong aversion to the legalese in America today. But magazine hawkers are by no means the only culprits out there. 
Deceptive religions play that same kind of linguistic game, do they not? They lure people in with a rock-solid, guaranteed good news program that God loves you so much that if you come to this church or join this church, he's going to give you a special place in heaven. As long as you keep the commandments and perform various religious obligations and, and give us a mandatory percentage of your loot, and step into the little spiritual hamster wheel and start your exhausting scampered into Nowhereville. I grew up in a religion that paid lip service to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but inserted it enough there with ifs and ands and buts and caveats and some cautions here and a few stipulations there and some other conditions, and all of it with a dependent clause to keep an army of attorneys arguing for years to come. The main point of that religiosity was that our behavior for all of us, while the focus of authentic Christianity is on Jesus Christ and his behavior on our behalf, it's Jesus, it's not how well I perform, right? Well, now this boy's a man, and when I viewed my standing with God as based on my obedience, I was in constant nail-biting jeopardy. How good is good enough for Almighty God? One day, a couple of friends asked me to read a few passages out of the Gospel of John, and tell them in my own words what the statements actually said. So I found myself there staring at the words of Jesus and replied, Well, it almost seems as if he's saying that if we believe in him, we can actually know, really know for sure, that we are going to go to heaven. Uh, but, of course, it can't actually mean that, can it? I started looking for the fine print, the asterisk there someplace, and I didn't find it anywhere. And over the next few months, guess what I learned? I learned that real Christianity doesn't have an if in there. It's not there. It is an absolute gift. And a gift is by definition something free. You can't earn a gift, and you can't obey a gift, and you can't, well, you can neither take it or not take it. That's kind of the way it works, right? When Jesus offers mankind, exhausted man, busted up man, hopeless man, spiritually broke man a gift, he really means it. And the value of that gift of eternal life makes $10 million look like some chump change to many. Have you ever taken Jesus Christ up on his offer? If so, then you're a rock-solid winner. There are no ifs and no ands and no buts. No, you can't earn a gift. Let me say it again. You can't obey a gift. You can only take or not take a gift. It's a rock-solid guarantee. No strings attached. Satisfaction? Yep, guaranteed. And we close as we usually do about real wealth. Talking spiritual now. Has there ever been a time in your life where you have cried out to Almighty God and asked Him to forgive you of your sins? And have you invited Jesus Christ into your life? Been born again? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Today, that's it. Today is the day of salvation. Why not ask him to forgive you of your sins and invite Jesus Christ into your life? It is a fantastic way to live and a fantastic way to die to the glory of God. Today in our Resource Center, we are featuring Michael Samuel Smith's brand new DVD film, God by the Numbers. If you love Bible prophecy and are fascinated by what numbers mean in the Bible, this teaching is the one you've been waiting for. Order God by the Numbers when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or you can always order online 
swrc.com. Lord willing, we'll be back here Monday, ready to once again bring clarity to the chaos. Don't miss a moment of Watchmen on the Wall. Download our SWRC mobile app or subscribe to our daily Watchmen on the Wall podcast. Head into the weekend, my friends, with the encouragement that God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.